following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. You know, I've entitled today's message, Jonah, a pig's ear, um, which I think works. Um, and last week we explored the fish and we really got rid of the big elephant in the room, which of course, in point of fact, was a large whale or big fish or sea monster. But this week I wanted to set Jonah in his historical and geographical context to start with. And if we look at this map in behind me here, you'll see for yourself the kind of geographical area that this whole story starts to take place. And we have up in here, Jonah finds himself in the period after the United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon has disintegrated into two, two kingdoms, of which we have a northern kingdom, which is Israel, and a southern, which is Judah. The period is about seven 30 BC, that's 700, sorry, 760 years before Christ himself, and of course, over 2,700 years before our own time. A little bit in the past, ladies and gentlemen. Jonah himself is a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel, and their nearest, one of their nearest neighbors is the incredibly large kingdom and nation of Assyria, a mighty powerful empire. The point I want to make about this in terms of the historical setting is that Jonah has been asked to go all the way to the great Assyrian city of Nineveh. And in Jonah, the first chapter, the first three verses, we read as follows, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What more do we need to know about Jonah than that one sentence? But instead of going and doing what God said, Jonah decided that he would go in the complete opposite direction. And I would suggest to you, this is going to color nearly everything we know about Jonah from those Sunday school stories with the flannel board to most of the sermons you'll ever hear about Jonah, that Jonah is a bad, naughty prophet. And he himself, my friends, if you were to behave in such a manner, you also might find yourself in the belly of a smelly fish or a large whale. Isn't that the truth, ladies and gentlemen? That's quite often we think of Jonah, aside from the amazing, miraculous nature of the story, Jonah becomes proverbial for being, do not behave like this because of something bad will happen to you. And Jonah, the characteristics of Jonah, I would suggest to you, don't read well at first flush when we look at the book of Jonah. This perception comes to us just from the first few verses. But there are a whole lot of unfavorable descriptions made of Jonah, even just by a cursory reading of the book. We've got to say, what kind of guy is this? God asks him to go to Nineveh. What does he do? He refuses. What is the one word you would use to describe somebody who's asked by God to do something and they decide they are 
they just say to God, basically, I am not doing it. What would that word be? You can yell out. Please don't yell in church. Come on. <laughs> that was totally inappropriate, Mark. Come on. Okay, so you would say this person was disobedient or rebellious. That's exactly right. You know, Jonah has good news to share with the people of Nineveh. Good news he's experienced himself, but decides he will not share it with them. What sort of thing, what word would you use to describe that sort of person or those actions? You would say he was selfish. Jonah decides that he will flee from the presence of the Lord. Come on, what kind of Gumby is this prophet? Seriously, ladies and gentlemen, is it possible to escape from the presence of the Lord? And that's exactly what it tells us in the book of Jonah. We would say to somebody who thought they could escape from God's all-seeing eyes, we would say they were foolish. Jonah knows the Ninevites will suffer God's wrath if they don't repent, but he does not seem to care. What would you call somebody? How would you describe the attitude of somebody who knew other people would suffer greatly and yet seems to show complete indifference to this? I would call them lacking in compassion or compassionless. Jonah has experienced God's goodness in his own life. And we see this in the story, but there are many times he does not give thanks for that. Jonah is a byword for ungratefulness as well in many respects. And then finally, and this is the one you will be the most familiar with, Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh. And he goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction, ladies and gentlemen. What would you call that kind of person who's a prophet called by God and seems to abandon God? You would call them the backslider. Wow. What a curriculum vitae. Disobedient, selfish, foolish, compassionless, ungrateful, backslider. If Jonah had taken a selfie while he was on that boat going all the way to Tarshish, my friends, how many likes would he have got from God? In many ways, though, I want to suggest this to you, something radical you may never have considered before. I want to tell you that I believe that we unfairly judge and assess Jonah why is it that we demand more of Jonah? If I get too loud, turn me down, sir. I'm going to get carried away. Thumbs up. He understands. I like that. I want us to think about Jonah in a different way. See, why is it that we're so gracious to people like Moses, Abraham, and David? Think about their lives. Wasn't it Moses, slaves, or Abraham that gave his wife to two other men? One who actually slept with her, Genesis 12. Isn't it also a man who slept with his Egyptian servant, his wife's Egyptian servant, despite God saying the promise would come through his own wife? Think about Moses. He kills a man. He tries to hide the murder. Then he escapes justice, runs away from justice. He contradicts God. And because of his presumptuousness, he is not able to enter the promised land. Think about David. He spots a sweet honey that's not his own wife. He sleeps with her, then essentially ensures that man's death so that he could keep her. And because of the blood on his hands, God says, you cannot build my temple. And yet, isn't it strange that we elevate these people? We love the stories of Abraham, Moses, and David. Oh, we couldn't extend the same grace to Jonah. Heaven help us if we looked at Jonah the same way we'd look at these other men. I would suggest one of the reasons we look at those, that triumvirate of men, we just, those little trio of men that we look at them so favorably, is because we look at them through Hebrews, the 11th chapter. 
You know, it enables us to see them through the eyes of faith and put on divine glasses and we go, oh my goodness, despite all their faults, God said they were men of faith. Just like you and I, we look past the follies, foibles, and outright sins of these men, and we go, yes, I'd love to have the heart of David. I would like to deliver a people in bondage just like Moses did. I'd like to be a blessing to other nations just as Abraham did. It's just like all the bad things they did are completely gone, blotted out. And yet with Jonah, well, we just couldn't extend that to him, could we? In part, it's because we see these people through the book of Hebrews, 11th chapter, and I'm going to suggest we can do the same thing with Jonah. This morning we're going to look at Jonah, I hope, in a different way. We're going to, if we can see Abraham, Moses, and David in a light that gives them a good deal of favor, perhaps we could extend a little bit of grace to Jonah. Or at least cast him in a more sympathetic light than perhaps we might have considered him, and I certainly did before I started looking in depth at the book. We might even have to admit that you and I at times have judged Jonah a little bit too harshly. I'm going to do it in three ways this morning. Three ways. Firstly, we're going to, I hope, be able to acknowledge that Jesus liked to hang with Jonah. Second, recognize that Jonah's actions are understandable and not altogether unreasonable. You may never have thought of this, but I'm going to tell you this morning that I think that many of us may have actually behaved in the very same way he did. And you say, but I'm a blood-brought, Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christian. Well, let's just see. And then finally, my third is to appreciate that God specializes in seemingly lost causes. Acknowledge that Jesus liked to hang with Jonah Recognize Jonah's actions were not so unreasonable and appreciate that God specializes in seemingly lost causes. The first point, how did Jesus see Jonah? You see, Jesus only associated himself explicitly in the Bible with one prophet. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there is a whole raft, a catalog of amazing prophets in the Old Testament. He could have associated himself with Isaiah, or if you're American, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Zephaniah, which sounds like a brand of car, doesn't it? Or at least a model, a Zephyr. If you think about this, ladies and gentlemen, he could have picked any of these prophets, but who's he pick? The one that is often the whipping boy for preachers. He picks Jonah. Jonah is going to be his an exemplar. It's going to be his model of speech. And this comes to us from Matthew's gospel. We saw it last week. Let's look at it up here. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them and he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jonah's frailty was all too well known to Jesus. Jesus knew that Jonah had attempted to flee from God and that his attitude had not been the greatest on many occasions, just over four chapters. Jonah sometimes does not come out so well. But he doesn't condemn Jonah. 
There's not a single hint of condemnation in here or a marring of Jonah's character. I would suggest that Jesus is looking at them, looking at Jonah with the mind of Christ. How do I know that? Because he is Christ. And I'm going to ask us to put on the mind of Christ this morning and think about it in terms of this text. Shouldn't we see Jonah as Jesus saw him? There are two parallels Jesus makes here with his own life. He says, when you think about Jonah, and he's, when he gets his calling and he ends up in the boat, and then he ends up in the water, then he ends up in the fish, then he ends up on dry land, Jesus says, guess what? All of that is like my incarnation. It's like my ministry. It's like my death, and it's my resurrection. All encapsulated in the life of this one man called Jonah. You see, if you think about it, Jonah would never have been a great illustrative point for Jesus if he had not tried to go to Tarshish. What does that tell us about the will of God or God's plan here? That's a possibility, isn't it, folks? Is it that God knew that Jonah would rebel and that he would head to Tarshish? Do you believe that God knows all things? <laughs> I am persuaded that he does. The Lord also notes that Jonah's success in preaching in Nineveh and its people, resulting in salvation through repentance, is like his own ministry and saving humanity. Wow. Jesus saw Jonah in a radically different way to the way he's often presented. My next point is the reasonableness of Jonah's decision. The decision not to go to Nineveh seems to be to us so bold, so stark, so rebellious, so downright wrong. But I wonder if it wouldn't have been the decision you would have made if you had been in his position at the time. And this is because in Psalms 11, verses 4 to 5, we read as follows. You needn't turn there, but I just want you to listen to this text. The Lord tests the righteousness, tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. You see, Jonah understood this about God, that when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood spoke from the earth to God. When violence covered the world, God said, I cannot handle, do not want to have this anymore. And he sends a massive flood to cover the earth to remove this violence. You see, God does not like violence. And there's one thing that Jonah knows about the Assyrians, that they are passionate advocates, lovers, and practices of violence. The Assyrians in the ancient world in the time of Jonah were a byword for terror and inhumane practices. Archaeologists have uncovered large panels displaying the cruelty of the Assyrians in post-battle scenes. If you go to the British Museum in London, there's a whole room devoted to these massive panels that have been discovered by archaeologists. I apologize, this is not so clear. But you can see some Assyrians in here on the top left-hand side, the soldier, down the bottom leading someone into slavery. The picture in the middle with these two men stretched out, I'm going to explain this. This is 
really a bit of R16 violence. I apologize for this in church, but if I don't say this, so if you've got kids here, I would suggest you cover their ears because what I'm about to tell you is extremely unpleasant, but you will never understand Jonah's decision unless you know what these people were like. You'll never understand it. The Assyrians were known to boast of their cruelty. We have large texts of their writing telling us what they thought about it. They weren't ashamed of it. They didn't try to hide it. They put it abroad and put it on large notices for everyone to see. They wanted people to know they were like this. They boast of their cruelty to captured people, not just to soldiers, but to women and to children. They made a parade of heads. What they would often do is they would slay a group of people and the surviving family members would decapitate the person, they'd take their head and they'd put it on a big pole and then they'd make some other member of the family walk through the city carrying the severed head on that pole. Now I know for most of you, you're thinking, well this is a story from the past, it's history. Those people were as real, flesh and blood, oxygen breathing, food eating, people of emotions and love like you and I. Imagine the distress, the pain, the anguish. They love to take big piles of heads and make mountains out of them. The picture you can see in the bottom part of this panel is actually someone being flayed alive, having their skin removed, and they would use it as decorations on their walls. They would pull people's tongues out and a few other things which I will for the sake of the fact it's a Sunday morning, not mentioned in church, but rest assured of this, ladies and gentlemen, they were not nice. They would also dismember people and leave just them with one hand, having removed the legs and one arm, so they could take the hand, the surviving hand of that person, and look them in the eye as they died. One of the kings of this period said this of his own activities. Let's look at this. He said, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as has rebelled against me and draped their skins over a pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built with them a tower before their city. And I burned their adolescent boys and girls and I captured many troops alive. I cut off their arms and hands. I cut off their noses, ears and extremities. I hung their heads on trees around the city. Let's go to a blank slide here where I just talk briefly about this. Jonah knew all of this. The Assyrians had been up to their evil and vicious antics for a hundred years before Jonah came along. And God is now asking him to go on a missions trip to these people. Well... You know, the church I go to, we've recently, we like doing church plants, and our main modus operandi, I guess, is to go into a city and establish a campus ministry. We really want our church's aim is to try and capture the hearts and minds and, of young people at university, because we believe that's where the future leaders of our country comes from. That's what we do globally. And um, we set up a church plant in Brisbane. I would suggest you going to Brisbane is a lot different than going to Nineveh. I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you, baby, if you go to Brisbane? The Warriors turn up and lose, and all those Bronco fans are going to give you a hard time. Oh, you poor little thing, you. 
You know, and you're going to go down to Waterworld or you're going to go to Warner's Movies and you're going to be price gouged at the food concession stands. My goodness, it's like hell, isn't it? Going to Brisbane, the temperatures are so balmy and so nice and the lovely restaurants and the choices you have to make at the all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. My goodness, what a missions trip. Count me in, Pastor. I, I want to go to the next one, especially if we set a church up in Tuscany. <laughs> it's totally spiritual. Totally spiritual. But you, can't you see this is a lot different than what was being asked of our man Jonah? Think about it. It would be as if you were a Jew in 1942 at the height of the Holocaust living in England and God told you to go to the heart of the Third Reich and walk through the great city of Berlin and tell Adolf Hitler and the Nazis to repent of their sins. What do you think would happen to you? And that's really what Jonah is being asked to do. I think he knew that he was going to be killed. We know that he, does, he is not killed. But my guess to you is that at the time, he believed he was going to die. If you were asked to go on a mission trip today and you knew it was almost certain death, would you go? Be honest. Number two, do you want such a nasty group of people to be saved? Isn't there not something in you, ladies and gentlemen, that cries out for justice, just as Abel's blood cried from the earth for justice? And if you're successful, you have to come back to your own people who do not like the Assyrians. Oh yeah, you'll be the flavor of the month with all the other Jews, won't you, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, I went off to the Assyrians. They repented, got saved. Yeah, and everyone's going, yeah, come on. Jonah, who do you think you are? How could you do that? And because he's a prophet, it may be that he already knew that the people that would be saved are the very same people that would come down to Israel and sack Samaria and bring great hardship about a hundred years later, which is exactly what happened. And then finally, isn't Jonah by saying, I am not going, he's actually been quite honest and he's asking God to be just. He's saying, come on, God, look at these people. And you want me to go and preach to them? I don't think so. I think it's time for justice to reign and bring an end to the violence they have spread across the earth of their known world at that time. Wow. I've suggested to you that Jesus saw Jonah in a different light to us. But also the historical context leads us to an understanding that perhaps it was not as unreasonable as we might have initially thought that he said, I'm not going to go. I'm not saying that it was right that he said that, by the way. I'm going to talk about that next week, the consequences of him saying no. But I do not think it is as unreasonable as we might initially think. My next point is this, my third and final point in here is that God loves using weak, foolish, despised, base people to carry out his works on the earth. Jonah is a great candidate. Given all those characteristics we looked at earlier, Jonah is a great candidate. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, we read as follows... In 26 to 29, for you see your calling, brethren, 
that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and the weak things of the world to put to shame the mighty, and the things that are base, and the things that are despised, and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things which are, so that no flesh might glory in my presence. What's God saying? He says, I like despised weak things. And I use them, why? Because it means that they will not take any glory upon themselves because they know when I work by my strong right arm on their behalf, it won't be them, it'll just be me. When Gideon went with 32,000 men up against the Midianites, God said these words to him in the book of Judges, the seventh chapter. He said, guess what? I don't want you going down there, defeating them and saying that you were delivered by your own hand. So guess here's what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen, orcs and elves. I want you to tell those, anyone who's fearful, they should leave. Immediately his army was cut down to a third. And God said, 10,000 people is just too many because you'll still take the glory yourself. Get them down to a pool, make them drink. And those that lap the water like a dog, send them home. Those that bring the water to their mouth, keep them. 300 people. God said, now we're in the ballpark. This is a game I like because it means that you cannot win. It is an impossible situation. You are too weak. And so when victory comes you will have to say, it was at my right hand that you were delivered. I feel this has something to do with God liking Jonah and using him. It's because Jonah, Jonah is weak. In some respects, he is despised, he is base, he is disobedient. It's God's special case. It's the way he wants to work. In the late 15th century, a large hunk of marble was carved out of northern Italy, a place called Carrera, and this beautiful big piece of marble weighed some 25 tons, and it was brought to the beautiful city of Florence on the Italian peninsula. And this massive piece of marble was so big that the local people called it the giant, and the first artist that was sculpted that was called to commission to work on it began work, but he only got a little bit through the legs and gave up. He discovered a fault in the giant. And this piece of marble rested in Florence for 25 years. It rested there for 25 years. And various sculptors came along and ran their hand along it, looked at it. They saw the half-finished legs, but they also saw the fault. And they said, we cannot work with this. Until the year 1501. And a young man in his 20s ran his own hand down the length. 15 meters long, the giant was, 15 meters long. And he said he saw the incomplete work and why the previous sculptor had rejected it, saw the fault. And he said, I can work with this. So the people of Florence gave him the commission. He's only in his 20s. 
and they built a big fence around so they couldn't see what he was doing. And for two years, all the people of Florence heard was the sound of hammer on chisel, chisel on marble, and the rising clouds of dust. In 1503 or 1504, the wall was taken down, the sculpture was erected over five, five meters tall. This sculpture has been seen by millions and millions of people on the earth. Lots of people go to Florence just to see this. The artist was Michelangelo. The sculpture is, of course, David having defeated Goliath. Let's look at this. Now, this doesn't do it justice, but of course it is glorious. Five meters tall, weighing six tons. This is how God works. <laughs> he will take people, even Christians, who are not even half finished, sometimes washed up in other churches, sometimes disregarded by elders, leaders, and fellow church members, and he says, this is the person I can work with, believers and unbelievers. He sees your faults. He sees half-finished project. He sees your habitual sin sometimes. And he says, I can work with the impossible case. I think it's the most beautiful story, folks. God specializes in turning a pig's ear into a silk purse. I don't know if you've heard that expression. I got it from my grandmother. Some people say it's a sow's ear, but in our family it was a pig's ear turned into a silk purse. It's taking something that's disreputable, unrefined, ugly, turning it into something reputable, refined, and gorgeous. That is what God loves to do. Do you know, I believe he could go to the poorest home in Auckland and look in the poorest pantry where there is virtually nothing, and he could get a little half shovel and brush, and he could sweep up the floor scrapings, and he could take the floor scrapings, because this is God, and he takes that which is not to put, bring to naught the things that are, and he could take those food scrapings, and he could turn them into a gastronomical delight that would make Gordon Ramsay and Jamie Oliver green with envy. What do you mean? That's impossible to do. That's right, because that's what God does. He could take a 30-year-old Toyota Corolla with rust in the door sills, a knock in the engine louder than an ACDC rock concert, and turn it into a blood-red V12 Ferrari. Why? He could just do that sort of thing. That's the way God operates. God can take a disobedient, selfish, foolish, compassionless, ungrateful, backslidden prophet and establish him as the Old, Old Testament template of Jesus' ministry and redemptive work on this earth. That's God. You see, I'm going to conclude with this. Jonah is not as he appears at first glance. He is the only prophet of the Old Testament Jesus expressly compares himself to. 
Jonah's rebellion at first glance might appear reckless, but in the context of the time, it was not ununderstandable. And finally, Jonah's foolishness, his weakness, his baseness is in point of fact, not a demerit, but a positive merit in God's economy and how God works. Let's face it. When you and I look at the book of Jonah, we're looking in a mirror. Come on! Isn't that the honest truth, though? You've looked down your nose at Jonah at other times like I have. When you really think about it, where you came from and perhaps where you are right now, you are looking slap dab into the face of yourself. Rather than asking how others see us or see you, you should be asking, how does Jesus see you? Do not be defined by other people. Be defined by how Jesus describes you. A royal priesthood, sons and daughters of God. You say, Adam, I see all my faults too greatly. Of course we do. But through the eyes of Christ, how are we seen? Rather than seeing questions as a negative, perhaps questions sometimes raised, I should be welcomed. Wasn't Jonah asking God a question? Do you really want to save these people? Look at them. Now, of course, God really did want to. We're going to discover that when I finish up this series. But we should also realize that our weaknesses, those things that you feel declassify you or decategorize you or move you away from any opportunity of ministry or doing anything else, may in actual fact be your greatest strengths. In God. I want to conclude with these thoughts before I hand over. God, in fact, might want you to be a blessing to a multitude like Abraham was, some of you here. God may want some of you to be a deliverer of people caught in economic, social, and spiritual bondage, just like Moses did. God is calling some of you in this congregation, this is for you folks, to establish a royal lineage of political and spiritual leaders like David did? Or is it possible that God wants some of you to call a nation to repentance and spiritual revival just as he did with Jonah? And what is the criteria for all these amazing tasks? That you be a pig's yeah. That's it. That is it. Father, we thank you that you do work with pig's ears. Lord, that we were disreputable, that we were lost without hope. But you stepped into our life. We thank you that you are the great sculptor, that you take that which is flawed and full of faults and you turn it into something, somebody amazing. Lord, thank you for Jonah. It gives us great heart and hope. Lord, bless uh, the people who have heard this message this morning. I pray if it touched anybody's heart, that if they feel that they are like Jonah, that this is actually an opportunity for you to come and minister and do mighty things in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.